Good morning and welcome to the latest in the Balderton Capital podcast series. I'm Ben Goldsmith and this morning I am joined by Chris Morton, the co-founder and CEO of List. Morning, Ben. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. The first thing to get right into it that I'd like to talk to you about, Chris, is building a team. Because List, I'm currently sitting in your wonderful offices here in Hoxton Square. And I know that you have team in the US and team abroad as well. Um, a lot has changed since you first started the business. You've raised, uh, I think, your Series C was last year, and that was a $40 million round, and that's come after raising $14 million from Balderton in 2014 and uh, raising A in seed money as well. Um, how has building a team changed since that early stage? I mean, I'm sure now that you don't get to interview every single person that uh, joins the company, now the team is at such scale. Um, how has the process changed and how have you as an entrepreneur adapted with that process? Well, at the very beginning, it was uh, a pretty fluid and informal process. There is an initial stage of hiring your friends, people that you've always loved to work with or wanted to work with. Um, and that's something that both Seb, my co-founder and I did early on. Um, there were, uh, you know, a CEO, one of your, one of your key jobs then, and, and potentially, you know, even now at 150 is to find the best team. Um, and so I would do a lot of crawling on LinkedIn, on Dribble, on, you know, whatever communities, you know, Django forums, trying to find folks. And occasionally, so Matt, our lead designer, he's somebody who I found on a, I think on Dribble, which is a, a network, a community of designers. And I just reached out to him. He came by at 5.30, by 6.30, he had a job. Uh, and you know, it was, it's, it's wonderful to be able to move that quickly. Yeah, and there were also folks, so James, who's our head of digital marketing, he just emailed us and said, I think you need somebody in digital marketing. We weren't really sure about that, but when we met him, we got much more sure. And so, uh, and so it's, you know, it's certainly one of the most important things, but can happen incredibly quickly. But you can, uh, you know, that, that informality cuts both ways. Sometimes you make wonderful decisions and both Matt and James, you know, still with us today in key parts of the team. You know, other times having a casual approach means that, that, you know, you will make mistakes. And I think now we have a head of talent, Matt Buckland, and there is a lot more rigor and thought that goes into the different interviews that we have to make sure that we are more likely to, to uncover any flags or de-risk the situations um, and so we still, I think, can be pretty quick. We can you know, make offers from first meeting to, to, to offer within a week, um, but, uh, but hopefully ensuring that it's a good fit culturally as well as uh, you know, operationally. It's interesting what you say, you know, it was a very informal process at the beginning. I think a great many, even very early stage entrepreneurs are of the belief that they have to have uh, their future team mapped out in their heads. They need to know exactly what roles they need to hire and in two, three, five years time, they need to know the roles that those people are going to hire as well. Is that not the case? Do you need a lot more flexibility at that earlier stage? I, I, I would say so. I think there are so many unknowns that you can't possibly begin to conceive that it is very difficult to predict what you'll need in two, four, six, ten years. I think secondly, it's really important to hire for the person you need today and not tomorrow. And so if you believe that you will be, you know, in, in two years, 100 people and solving these problems, you know, it's, it's very challenging to be able to hire that person today, um, you know, for a number of reasons. Potentially, they might not be the person to get you from A to B. They might not want to be involved in A to B, they maybe only want to be involved in B to C. Um, and there is also, 
uh, a belief which I think which I think is right that you know some people thrive working in small businesses some people thrive working in big businesses and of course some people are entirely agnostic you know I look at our first employee you know who is still with us today I think he came from a telecoms company where he was working for uh, working alongside tens of thousands of people and, and, and this chap Igor is just one of these fantastic people who you know does an amazing job regardless of the size so it's one of the key things for us early on was to identify whether the person was going to, you know, the, the, the hire was going to work really well when we were three people, 10 people, 30 people. Uh, and unfortunately, there have been some people who have not been right for us at 150 who were right at 10. And there are probably some people, vice versa, who are right today that weren't right, you know, a few years ago. And is that necessarily a bad thing? Because I remember on a previous one of these podcasts talking to George Spencer from Rentify, who was saying that people... He, he made a great first hire that in his mind was a fantastic first or, you know, early hire. But that person was great from one to 20 or so people. But as soon as the business gets larger, they almost made their own role redundant or the way the business had adapted had meant that that person just wasn't a good fit anymore. But George still says that person was fantastic and they moved on on very amicable terms. Is that often the case with entrepreneurship and with building a business? Should younger entrepreneurs almost not see it as a massive black mark if an early employee doesn't scale with the business some some early employees scale others don't um and it's absolutely not uh you know not a reflection of that early employee who doesn't scale it's not a bad reflection on them you know sometimes it's just as much driven from them as it is from the situation that they want to be a generalist they want to to you know, work in these very small environments and by definition scaling and success is going to put a challenge to that. Uh, I think in mature startup ecosystems there is more familiarity with that concept. So I'd say in the Valley this is more of a known thing and, and, and certainly uh, self-awareness from folks who are those great early employees you know, is more prevalent. Um, here we're, you know, it's a bit more of a mixed bag and some people it would be super amicable others you know may find it frustrating if they're not aware that this change is happening because often the change happens really subtly mm. you know and there'll be more people added and more people added and and the ground will shift ground is constantly shifting underneath your feet um and this goes for everyone involved in the business and it's important to take a step back and actually reflect uh, on these changes so you can manage them actively rather than passively be pushed about by them it's very interesting that you say ground shifting beneath your feet because yes, the world of startup businesses and growing businesses is a very fast paced and uh, frequently changing environment. Something that I would imagine has changed this for the better a few times are the rounds of funding that we mentioned earlier on, you know, raising your C last year and uh, that was a $40 million check. When those um, milestone investments hit the company, does that alter how you hire does it alter who you can hire or do you attempt to maintain a sort of swan-like consistency throughout all of those milestones uh, so i don't think swan-like consistency uh <laughs> whatever that may mean is 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 actually a good um is a good way to scale so so what we what we believe in is more scaling and then a fixing phase so you know, if you're going to go through a fast pace of growth, and, and indeed after we raised that round, uh, the, the forty million dollar round, we did grow the team. I think we almost almost doubled it in fifteen months. Wow. So quite quite a quite fast growth. Um, and you know, candidly, some teams are beautifully functional, and we're very very happy with with that change. And other teams, there was a bit more dysfunction that needed to be 
uh, managed and, and thought of. And, and uh, you know, a good part of that is on us because you know we didn't. When you're when you're growing that quickly, it's very difficult to anticipate 100% successfully. You know, all the things that are going to come up um, in terms of you know, is this structure actually going to be the right structure? Whereas when you grow organically and slowly, you have more time to fix as you go. And so, you know, having grown very quickly. Um, and every time we've grown, done these sort of growth spurts, we like to set aside a period of maybe six to nine months where we grow far less aggressively, maybe even, you know, in terms of headcount, more or less keep the same size. And this is the fixing phase. This is the phase to understand uh, in terms of the team structure, have we got the structure right? Is what we imagined 12 months ago actually what we need today? And do we need to tweak there? And also in terms of people, and as I mentioned earlier, some people work wonderfully well as small teams or big teams or, ag or agnostic to team size. Um, and it's very difficult to know that until you're actually in that environment and seeing you know, what's working well, what's not. And this fixing phase is the time where we shore up the foundations. We make sure that we're building you know, on a solid ground and then that prepares us for the next phase of growth. And I think if you don't have that and you have a, a, a consistent gradient, you know, at 30 degrees, 45 degrees, what have you, you never have that time to fix the foundations and you can lead to catastrophic failure at the end if you if you if you um if you just go head down grow 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 because i think that's a misperception because everyone i think well everyone lots of entrepreneurs doing their first company are aiming for that exponential growth curve that looks really nice on a graph when it comes to team and revenue and everything but what you're advocating is yes aggressive growth after you uh, hit some new investment or similar, but then take the time to fix and normalize after that. Yeah, well, so, so team and revenue are, are different. You know, uh, I mean, revenue, you certainly would hope to, to, to keep growing. Um, although I would say that no, no, I've never seen, or I've seen very few growth curves when it comes to revenue that are consistent. There are peaks and troughs and you know, terrible tragedies that you know, <laughs> befall. So, so it's always, um, you know, that line of what success looks like is never linear. But, um, but when it comes to the fixing phase, the efficiencies you get from that should also drive growth. So that would impact revenue or usage or whatever metrics for the product uh, or service that you're delivering. Um, I think it all, it's also worth pointing out that there is a bad habit that entrepreneurs fall into, and I can certainly see this in myself, uh, where you know, quite often at events, people will say, you know, how are things going? What's, uh, what's new? How big are you? And talking about team size is typically the the easiest way to kind of say, oh, things are going well, yeah. And um, you know, I th I think it's it's quite dangerous because there's a good amount of ego in you know answering that question with how big the team is. Um, you know, so so I'd always like you know, encourage other founders to be very introspective and ask themselves if they really need to grow the team as quickly as they want to, particularly post-raise, and understand whether um, you know, a slower growth might be more functional and really divorce these concepts of, uh, of ego and pride from uh, what the company actually needs. That is an incredibly interesting point and has probably punctured a few egos of uh, entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, you'd hope, because it seems to make sense in my mind when even I asked uh, an entrepreneur how's it going and they say well we've hired x amount more people in the last three months it does sound impressive but you're quite right uh, the amount of people you have working for you does not necessarily equal the the success of the business so do we need to find another metric of success yeah yeah well I mean I think or just or just watch yourself as an entrepreneur when they're externally you know talking to investors or press they have an obligation to the business to tell a positive story 
but if you do that too much and you believe your own hype then uh, you know that takes you to a dangerous place so let's talk about uh, an area of your business that you have um, scaled effectively over uh, these rounds of investments and over the the lifeline of list which is um, I, I saw a stat in an article about this which was 50% of all of your employees are either engineers or data scientists now that means what you have 70 80 of these individuals in in your team across nations at the moment that sounds like one heck of a task from going from the the uh business you initially founded with two co-founders to a, looking after a team of 80 or so specialists how has that scaled over time uh, and do you as the entrepreneur manage the scaling of that team or have you delegated that to a a, a technical specialist with it within your ranks so, so the percentage, that 50% mark, has been more or less consistent all throughout the, the growth of the business. And the reason is that we are um, an engineering business. To do what we do, we have to have a great grip on engineering and data. Uh, and, and maybe it's worth me having, saying a few words about what the company actually yeah. does. So, so we are a fashion e-commerce marketplace. So we have to aggregate about 4 million products from stores and brands all over the world. And then we help people buy them uh, through, again, through this marketplace model. So we don't have to hold any inventory. There are no list warehouses. There are no operations and logistics. And I wake up every morning feeling uh, thankful for that. <laughs> but there are many other challenges. And actually normalizing large data sets from all these retailers and brands is quite challenging. We have hundreds of thousands of items coming in each week, understanding exactly what they are, sizing schemas, uh, you know, different terms for products that come from different countries. It is a, a minefield, but in order to solve that problem, we have to be an engineering and data business. And so that it really was about uh, understanding the, the challenges that we would face with our model and being able to build from day one to solve those problems. And from day one, that was, that was me um, reaching out to a technical co-founder, to Seb, our CTO, and uh, the two of us, and candidly largely led by him, you know, have scaled out this engineering organization. There was a time where uh, we brought on a head of engineering, Neil, who you know, has really um, you know, stepped up to help us uh, understand how we organize these teams in a highly autonomous, low dependency um, you know, these, 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 these uh, different team structures, um, you know, there's more people management required than was required in the beginning. You know, everyone just happened to know what everyone else did without any process. And then, you know, the feedback loop came as we grew that people were a bit less clear in terms of the overall direction of the company and realizing that the C-level role or my role in particular was more about, you know, investing more in communication and everything. Um, so, so really it's been... Um, it's been quite a challenging journey uh, to make sure that, that we can sort of keep the functionality, you know, not be dysfunctional whilst being a team of sort of 60 or 70 engineers and data scientists and product managers. As the business grows, as things on the product change, you know, there have to be some fluidity about how these, these teams are organized that has to be coupled against the fact that change makes people less efficient. So it's kind of a balancing act. But at the same time, one of the great advantages that startups have, and we would still view ourselves as a startup at 150 people, um, is that we are more nimble and agile than others in our space who've been around for a lot longer. And we have to be able to use that to our advantage. And having these you know, highly autonomous, low dependency, flexible teams is one key way to do that. And 
you mentioned that uh, you mentioned your co-founders in the answer to that question to row all the way back to when you were starting list with your with your two co-founders how important is it to have the technical expertise in the co-founding team because it's a question that uh balderson we certainly asked a decent amount uh from very early stage companies is a team of non-technical co-founders can they outsource the technical bit of their business and the answer is usually no the expertise need to be in the co-founding team i I think the answer to that question for me entirely depends on what the company is doing and you know we identified early on that that we had to have a very strong technical element of our business to do what we wanted to do and that is why my first and probably most important um early decision was was to bring uh, seb on board uh you know if your startup business is more um maybe you're building a brand online and actually a lot of the technical parts are you know, commodities in terms of building a website and you can plug into, you know, logistics APIs and whatnot, then, you know, maybe you don't need technical partners. Maybe it's fine to have somebody skin a Ticktail site or Magento or what have you, um, you know, rather than actually investing in, in, in core engineering talent from day one. So, you know, the other businesses where operations and logistics would be the key and that should be brought on early on. So I think like, I think for me, the question is identify what is the key uh, strength you need on the business what is the dna of the team got to be in order to deliver what you want to and then go after that there isn't going to be a one size fits all that everyone needs tech or everyone needs operations because there's so much variety in, in the businesses we see coming up today we've mentioned previously in this podcast a couple times that you've raised quite a few rounds of investment now but chris as many of our listeners will know you used to be an investor yourself at Baldur's and Capital nonetheless. When you were raising even, you know, the seed rounds and the early 5 million rounds and the 14 million from Balderton, how useful was having that uh, experience as a, as a VC? Did it, one, I, I assume the network was quite important. And secondly, did knowing the processes that VCs use to spot businesses and invest in businesses help when you were uh, trying to get funding for List? Yeah, it was it was hugely important. Um, and in fact, before joining uh, Benchmark, as it as it was actually when I joined, I uh, showing your age, Chris. Yeah, there you are. So <laughs> two thousand seven, I think. So I was um, I was thinking about starting something, a consumer web company, and in thinking around what I needed in terms of team, what the product metrics, what were the you know I didn't really have any networks. I hadn't worked in consumer web before. You know, the reason I joined Venture in the first place was so that I could start a business. And I was pretty open about that in, in the early conversations with the, the team there. And, and you know, thankfully, they were very supportive. Uh, and so I viewed the two years that I spent there as you know, a, a sort of post-grad education almost. <laughs> you know, hopefully, I was able to add some value to, to, to the fund in terms of some of the support I gave. But you know, from my side, it was about... Um, working with incredibly smart partners who'd been there uh, before, either as entrepreneurs or as investors in some of the companies that you know I loved most. So that was an incredibly powerful um, learning opportunity. Also spending time with the entrepreneurs who they had backed and seeing some of their mistakes and seeing some of their successes and figuring out which of those I could learn from, understanding how investors approached opportunities, how much they valued team, how much they valued certain, certain growth, certain KPIs, uh, all of those were, were hugely important for me in terms of understanding and planning my own business. Um, and, you know, when it came to the folks we raised from, 
uh, knowing that was very helpful. Knowing them in some cases was very helpful for a first conversation. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I think beyond that first conversation, the merits of the business and the rest of the team obviously became more important. So it was not absolutely a shoe in, but, you know, I at least had spent some time understanding, uh, you know, who are the folks I should speak to, what were they interested in and, and, and how could, uh, you know, would my business make sense to them? So, so the two years I spent at, at Benchmark and Balderton were absolutely key to, to any success that, that we've seen subsequently. So that's an interesting point that uh, potentially the piece of advice that you can wring out of that is if you're a young entrepreneur but potentially don't have the experience in raising investment nor do you have uh, a fantastic network, try and become a VC. Well, I mean, this is, this is it's very personally something that, that I have found <laughs> helpful. You know, the founders of some of the most impressive consumer web businesses in the world uh, did not think that was important, did not think even finishing an undergrad was important. Uh, you know, my co-founder Seb did not finish his undergrad and has founded a number of businesses. So it's, uh, it's definitely, again, not one size fits all. But for me, I felt it was, uh, you know, it was the right thing for me to do at the time. And I felt very thankful for it. You mentioned the, the other entrepreneurs that you became introduced to as part of the, you know, Balderson Network and the VC Network. Uh, speaking as a, an entrepreneur, there's a an interesting piece that I've read a few times, uh, an interview with you in Business Insider where you, ex- where you explain the, the quite large pivot that, uh, that List made from being an aggregator of different fashion items across different websites to being this universal checkout, the universal basket. I think neither of us deny that's a pretty fundamental shift for the business to make. How did you as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, sell that? And I mean to all of the communities and stakeholders that you'd have to, I guess, explain that very big call to your employees, your investors. How, how did that work? And, and why were you so sure that it was the right thing to do? So I think, um, I think there's a Jeff Bezos quote, uh, and I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but he says something like, you know, we must be stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. And you know, I was looking back at the, the plan in 2009 that sort of sketched out about the business. And fundamentally, we wanted to help people discover and buy things in fashion. That was the vision. We felt it was very fragmented, very confusing, in typically in mature markets like the, like the United States. Um, and back in the day, we started in a very social model. We suggested you follow your friends and maybe you'd get great recommendations from them. This is in the days of social gaming where Zynga was on the ascendancy and um, and so we tried that and so it didn't work, but really we were quite happy to bin it because it was a detail and not the vision. And so the next question was, well, how else can we start delivering this experience that helps customers navigate this complex and fragmented fashion universe? Um, and so at that point we looked at the data and realized that people didn't like following friends for recommendations, but really liked following brands and people were very brand driven, particularly at the luxury or contemporary higher price point. And then took that and figured out, well, what could we do after that and go on? And, you know, whether the model was an affiliate model where people were redirected and had to transact somewhere else, or whether it was transactional where people could check out in a universal basket, multiple products from multiple stores with a single click or tap, you know, that was a detail as well. For us, it was, again, is this going to help us with this vision or not? Um, And so it was something that we were certainly willing to try. And particularly as we saw more and more traffic shifting to mobile, and again, showing my age in 2010, that was not really such a thing. Um, it became uh, easy for us to believe that 
being transactional in a mobile first world was going to be a key part of that experience we wanted to deliver. Uh, and we looked at some other adjacent companies. We looked at booking.com, which certainly has been a very uh, successful um, business and a very key inspiration for us, understanding how they help customers navigate that world of, of, um, of meta search and hotels and realized that you know a lot of the stickiest e-commerce experiences were transactional rather than lead gen. And you know, looking at these external signals, thinking about what we understood about our customers, you know, those led us down the path of saying, look, we have to make this transition. And it was going to be an incredibly painful transition because when you are um, in the lead gen world, it's, it's all you have to do really is show a customer a picture they like uh, and maybe a price they like. Whereas if you have to be transactional, a lot more um, onus is on, the, is on the destination to, to convince the customer that this is you know, a good product to buy. There has to be more correct sizing. The data challenges become more meaningful. Your customer has to trust you a lot more, that you are going to be a good place to buy from. Where again, an affiliate, you don't care about these things. It's just about you know, as many leads uh, as possible. Um, and so it was quite a challenge technically from the consumer point of view, from a sales point of view, convincing partners that this was going to be, again, a key thing in the mobile first world that we were all convinced was that we were going down. But again, once we had conviction, that communication came very naturally. And I think there's, a, there's another challenge worth talking about, which is, you know, in these big bet the business uh, scenarios, you can't always be as data driven as you'd like and you might imagine that we are as a very as an you know the size of engineering and product team that we have and data science that we have you know the culture is very analytical and quantitative and typically the changes we want to make we want to look at uh, early data to, to quantify the implication of a change but there are some times where the journey is going to be such a long one that it's difficult to do that and, and we don't want to make so many of those bets because they're risky because it is uh, you know, it's, it's not de-risk as much as you'd like to be, but uh, I think many companies from time to time have to make these bets, have to, 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 to guess what is it going to be like if we're able to make this transition and uh, try to get comfortable and take temperature at various points on that journey, but recognize it might be a one, two, three year journey to get there. And that's, I think entrepreneurs, of course, looking at data, but not ignoring that thing in their gut that says this is the right decision to make for the business yeah it's a very it's a very difficult balance you know so you try to de-risk it as much as you can but recognize that you can't always de-risk it you know there there are scenario, you know, stories of folks who building hardware products you know they don't have the joy of, of building you know web and taking temperature very often and again you can try to de-risk with focus groups but i think i think the focus group that was responsible for testing the sony walkman back in the late 70s were, were incredibly negative on the concept. And the CEO of Sony you know, said, said he didn't care. He said he's just gonna build it anyway and it became one of the most iconic pieces. Um, and so it's a challenge because you have these wonderfully inspiring stories like that. You also have uh, these terrible product flops. In fact, there is a museum somewhere <laughs> in the United States, I forget where, I think maybe Wisconsin, which is a museum just of failed products. Uh, and it's quite exciting to, to think like, how did they possibly think this was gonna be successful? And both of the, the driving forces of successful and, un and successful, unsuccessful products, they, cl they clearly had conviction and determination. Um, and so it's, it's important we don't have like survivor's bias and just you know, look at the, the successful ones. 
but it is uh, it's definitely a challenge uh, and it can't always be 100% de-risked and there are some cases hopefully not that many where you have to have that leap of faith yeah trust your gut and have that conviction as you say and does that help when uh, receiving any pushback you know when you are making that decision to bet the business as you say i'm sure there were some uh, whether it's consumers or investors or employees or whoever it might have been that thought well hang on chris are you sure because the affiliate model was going very well at that point uh does that courage and conviction just help you push through the pushback as it were so so i think it's it's very helpful to be challenged and i think uh you know in in you know investors for example if they pushed us to say have you thought about this have you thought about that what can we learn from this you know a lot of that feedback was very helpful to help us dig more speak to more people who'd been on that journey um so i don't think it's i don't think it's blind faith you know i think um there is a you know there's something called the stockdale paradox and again i won't get this exactly phrased as well as it should be but it's something along the lines of the paradox is you have to have you know, lasting conviction and faith that the direction you're heading in is correct. But you also can't be blindly going there and you have to be looking at the data around you. Uh, you know, and, and it's a very difficult balance to get. You know, you shouldn't just be hands over ears careering in a direction when everything around you is telling you it's wrong. You have to take a judgment as, as a leader of a business that I've weighed up the risks, I've done some diligence, I've got, you know, some qualitative reasons for why I think this is going to be important. Maybe I've tried to do more de-risking if there is, but at some point I'm going to have to make a call and this is the call I make. Chris, I noticed that we're running out of time, but this has been a very interesting episode and thank you very much for your insight. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.